So, we're going to be talking about Noah's Ark today. Most of us, I am assuming, are familiar with the story of Noah's Ark. It's something that we're started to, we start to get taught in nursery, and then in the children's ministry, and it continues on from there. I always thought it was kind of interesting that we teach little children, especially like in the nursery age, about the great flood, especially when you think about what the flood entails, the wiping out of almost all life on the planet, and we're teaching little kids this. Granted, we've changed it a bit. Here's a couple of examples. Noah's Ark, it's rainbows, sunshine, everyone's happy, look at the animals, things look great and grand. The Bible paints a very different picture of what happens during the flood. It's not as nice and pretty as the children's books make it out to be seen. And don't hear me on this. I'm not criticizing those books. Obviously, I don't think we should be talking about mass extinction with our two- and three-year-olds and being that dark with them. But this is kind of what our minds go to when we think of Noah's Ark, right? We think of the big rainbow in the sky. We think of how God saved Noah and his family and saved the animals and they're all just happy and things are grand. But really, the flood is the result of God's wrath and his judgment against sin. The flood is the result of mankind's sin against God. So this morning, we're going to dive deep, no pun intended there, into this passage and unpack the flood. There's quite a bit of reading to go through, so I have broken it up into chunks, and we're going to pull several themes out of it. These themes that I believe the Lord has given to us by his word, so we could apply it to our lives. Our first point, drawn out of this passage of Genesis 6, verse 5 to chapter 8, verse 19, is that, Christian, God is just and righteous in exercising his wrath and judgment. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with them to Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it so grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry I have made them. What do we notice in these first few verses? We see that the wickedness of man was great. The Bible tells us that every intention of man was wicked. This goes very contrary to the mantra we hear today that people are basically good, right? 
during this time, every thought, every inclination, every action of man was evil. When I sit there and I ponder what that may have looked like, it terrifies me. Because today, modern man has committed many atrocities. And I wouldn't say we were even near where they were in Noah's day. You can just imagine the depth of that evil. You see, man's desire was to sin. And they sinned willingly. They willingly were wicked and evil. Now the Bible tells us that the wages of our sin is death. This is Romans 6.23. So God, the creator of the universe, is looking down on his creation. And he sees the humanity that he made. That fell into sin. Committing horrible atrocities. And it grieves him. And he is the one who stated that if Adam and Eve had ate of the tree, they would surely die. That's telling us the consequences of sin is death. So we see that God is grieved by the sin of humanity. Now we need to take a moment here to unpack what it means by the Lord regretted that he had made man. Opponents of scripture will sometimes say, look, God changed his mind. I thought you said you served a God who was unchanging. But clearly here, he's regretting that he made man. But we need to look at it in the larger context of the passage. It's not that God has changed his mind. It is that our sin is so deep, we have grieved him. Think of a parent and their child, and the child continually doesn't listen and does things to hurt their parent. That parent is grieved. Does the parent change their mind on how they feel about the child? No, that they are grieved. God does not change, and we have confidence that we serve a God that does not change. He's the same today and forevermore. But that doesn't mean our actions don't grieve him. We also see that God's wrath against sin is great. That he is so grieved that he says, I will blot out man whom I have created. Again, just think of the depths of the depravity, of the evil, of the wickedness of Noah's generation. That would cause God to go, I am going to wipe them out. Now, opponents of Scripture will say, wow, you serve a genocidal God. He's going to wipe out all of humanity. That's not very loving. But God is going to enact his judgment because of our sin. People who say things like, your God is loving, he would never do that, don't actually understand the character of our God. Our God is holy. He is just. He is righteous. He detests sin. Sin is essentially us saying to God, we don't need you. I'm my own God. 
I decide what's best for my life. It's the creature saying to the creator, we are our own God. So his wrath is kindled against our sin. And since he is a just God, he cannot let sin go unpunished. But we'll see, even with the enactment of his judgment with the flood, there is still grace and mercy. Let's turn our attention now to uh, verses 11 to 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We notice first off in this passage that man's corruption included violence. They were an extremely violent generation. We also see that because of man's sin, because of their great wickedness and violence, that all of creation is going to be subject to God's judgment because of what we had done. So when the Bible talks about making an end to all flesh, the Bible is talking about an end to all of man, all of the living creatures on the land and in the sky. And then we see that God will indeed enact his judgment against sin. If we think back to two weeks ago when Pastor Nate was talking about the Nephilim, that is a sign of where humanity was, how depraved in our sin we were. It is a good thing that God enacted his justice against that wicked generation. It is also a good thing that our Lord is gracious in mercy, gracious with mercy. We see that God intends to enact his judgment through a global flood. A flood that is so devastating, so powerful. This is a flood that will come by the rain coming on the earth for 40 days. That the fountains of the deep will open up. The water from the underground lakes, the underground springs would open up so that the whole earth would be covered. Chapter 7, verse 23 states, He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were all blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. God's judgment 
when it comes, it is a terrifying thing. So God is just in exercising his judgment against man's sin. If he did not exercise his judgment, he would not be the God of the Bible, for he would not be just. Would you say a judge is just if they let the murderer off the hook? No payment for their crime? If the judge just said, yeah, I don't care that he murdered that family, he can go free. That judge would not be a very just judge. We would not want that judge on the bench. God was perfectly just in exercising his judgment against man because man had disobeyed God's commandments, was violent, and loved their sin more than him. Only Noah and his family will survive. Now, before we move on to our next point, we need to talk about the implications of the flood. You see, the flood today is seen by most people, even Christians, as just a story. That it's merely meant to warn us of God's judgment. That it actually, that it didn't take place. It didn't happen. It wasn't a real historical event. But it was. We're going to unpack that. This is the uh, Ark Encounter. I've been there twice. Uh, I'm going to take this moment to say, if you would like to dig more into the flood account or creation, Answers in Genesis is a great resource to do so. Unfortunately for me, and probably fortunately for you guys, I don't have time to unpack every little thing in this passage. We'd be here all day. So I've slimmed it down to just three major points from this next section. Three points of controversy. Three points of contention. So our second point is, Christian, the flood was a real historical event that was global, that's extremely important, and ultimately shaped the world we live in today. The world that we inhabit today was a world that was shaped and formed by the flood. So if we turn our attention to uh, chapter seven or uh, chapter six, verses fourteen to twenty-two, here the Lord is giving instructions to Noah for building the ark. These are very specific instructions, and we see that Noah obeys. He builds the ark according to the instructions the Lord gave him. God also in this portion of scripture gives instructions for the animals who would come on the ark and how to care for them. And then lastly, God gave them instructions on how to store the food and how, when to eat the food. Here we see our sovereign Lord is providing for all of Noah's needs in this. 
the Lord will provide for our needs just as he provided for Noah. And because Noah obeyed the Lord, he survives the flood. So our first common objection to the flood that we're going to deal with tonight, or this morning, I mean, excuse me, is this idea that it was a local flood. You know, growing up, I always thought that the flood was just a story as well. I never gave it much thought until I was older and come to realize that it was a true, real, historical event that was global. And then I learned that there are Christians that also believe that, but instead of it being a global flood, they believe that it's a local flood, and they fight tenaciously to prove that it was a local flood. So we're going to look at this view real quick. They believe that this was a local flood that occurred in uh, a region in the Middle East. That it was just essentially several rivers that flooded greatly and destroyed things around them. And that was it. How did this viewpoint come to prominence in Christianity? Well, it comes from the rise in the eventual dominance of evolution in the science community. You see, in evolution, it teaches there's millions and millions of years that all the rock layers we see are different epochs of time, different extinctions that pass, that you have one layer that builds on top of another, and this takes place over millions of years. So in that view, a global flood doesn't make sense. So we have to remove that global flood from the narrative. And you have Christian scholars that are willing to go along with that, They're not totally willing to give up the Bible yet, so then they say, well, it was just a local flood. Because a local flood still fits within that scientific narrative, and we can make it work. Another reason why there is the rise of local flood is there are over 300 different flood legends and accounts from around the world from ancient cultures. Now, skeptics of the Bible will say, look at all these different flood accounts. The Bible's just copying one of them, clearly. We as Christians say, well, the reason why there's so many flood accounts is probably because it was a real event. And we have the true record of it in Scripture, and all the others are just fabricated copies of it. That happened over time. The issues with a local flood narrative... First major issue is the local flood narrative contradicts Scripture. That's the first major issue. As Christians, we want to be people that are under the authority of the Word, even if we don't truly understand it. Even if we don't like what we always find in Scripture, we should still submit to God's Word. See, according to the Scriptures in Genesis chapter 7, Verses 17 to 23, the waters prevailed high above the earth. The earth referring to the whole globe. If it's a local flood, how could the waters have gotten high and prevailed over all the earth? Next, we have the presence of different rock layers with fossils throughout them. Now, what's interesting is you can look at these different 
rock layers from around the globe, these same layers will contain the same amount of fossils and fossils from the same species. Evolution claims that's just happened over a period of time. But what makes more sense is a global flood that wiped out and fossilized those creatures immediately. Also, the different rock layers we see, to put it into perspective, how many of you in elementary school did the science experiment where you put in a bunch of mud and sand and silt in a jar, filled it with water, shook it up, and then let it sit there for a few minutes, and then you notice that it sorts all the silt into different layers? That's what happened in the global flood. Sadly, uh, these last couple weeks, we had the tragedy of the submarine that went to go visit the Titanic. It imploded because of the pressure. So just think about a global flood, the amount of pressure water can do, and there you go, you have your rock layers formed. The scientific term for that is stratified rocks, which is sediment that has settled and has separated out of the moving water and then hardened into rock by the pressure from the water. I'm going to look at a couple of examples, too, to show issues with a uh, local flood and issues with an evolutionary theory of how our world came to be. This here is a tree stump that is actually through two different rock layers. According to evolution, this should never have happened. Each rock layer contains a different set of species that lived at that time that wiped out, were fossilized, and then the next level of species lived, wiped out, and were fossilized. How is it possible that this tree trunk is through both of these layers? Well, a global flood could explain that. When it happens, the silt comes around it, it's separated, and it's still standing and fossilized like that. And this is just an example of the different rock layers we see. Think back to that science experiment in elementary school. It was pretty cool to see how the sediment sorted itself into the different layers. This is essentially what happened in the global flood. And we see these rock layers all across the globe in the same way, the same manner, same distribution. Only a global flood can explain that. Not a local flood. Another issue, and this comes down to logic, if the flood was local, why would God command Noah to build an ark? Think about it. If the flood's local, wouldn't you just move to higher ground? When the tsunami sirens go off on the coast of Japan, people move to higher ground. They're not commanded to quick build a boat. They're commanded to flee to higher ground. So why did God command Noah to build the ark if he could have just went to higher ground, if the flood was local. The same thing could also be said for the wicked people. How could the flood wipe out the wicked people if the wicked people had the same choice as Noah just to flee to higher ground? The flood had to be global. And why did Noah remain on the ark for so long if the flood was local? We see today, like local floods, they don't last very long. They're very destructive, very powerful. It's just a reminder of how powerful water is, especially fast-moving water with lots of pressure. 
If it was local, it should have been over in a few weeks. But the global flood prevailed on the earth for a little over a year. And then we see fossils of the same species distributed all around the globe in similar rock layers. So when we come to interpreting the world around us, what lens are we going to interpret the world around us with? Are we going to use the lens of culture and science, which continues to change, or are we going to attempt to understand the world through the lens of Scripture? Now, that's not saying that science is false. Evolutionists and Christians that believe in the Bible look at the same set of data, but we interpret it differently. We interpret it through different lenses. Evolutionists interpret it through millions of years. Christians, hopefully, interpret it through the lens of the Bible, which tells us that a global flood did this, not millions of years of death and destruction and decay. Another common objection to the flood. How could Noah get all the animals on the ark? How many of you have actually thought this to yourself at some point or another? If you take scripture seriously, you sit there and you go, you look around the world today and we've got like millions of different species. How could Noah have gotten all of those on the ark? We have the dimensions of the ark. There is no way it could fit all those species. Even if they're all babies, there's just no way. How does that work? But we serve a great and mighty God who has gifted us with some very intelligent people who have figured this out for us. We're not going to get too technical in the science, but I do want to give you some practical points to help you defend why you believe in the biblical account of the flood. So how did Noah get all the animals in the world on the ark? It's important to notice in the passage the Lord refers to them by kind, not by species. There's a difference in today's language. Kinds essentially refer to a family. So, take dogs, for example. The dog species. The dog species is a part of the larger family that includes wolves, coyotes, dingoes, and the rest. And sadly, poodles. That's a family. Species, on the other hand, refers to notable differences that make it impossible to interbreed. We'll take this example of a cat. So according to Genesis, and according to the flood account, kinds, you have a family of cats represented there with the DNA strand at the bottom. That cat contains all the genetic information for the different cats we see today. Tigers, lions, domestic cats, bobcats, whatever you want. That kind contained all the genetic information for that. Two weeks ago we had, uh, no, a few weeks ago actually, we talked about the longevity of human lives in the Bible in the beginning. Their genetics were different. They were much more pure and not as affected by the fall as we are now. To put it loosely, we're degenerates compared to the ancients. Because if you think about it from a genetic standpoint, you're only passing on certain genes. You're not passing on all of your genes. You're only passing on certain genes. 
And with each generation, you're eliminating a pool of genes. So this is essentially what we see happen over the course of time. It's not that these species evolved. Evolution requires the gaining of genetic information. It's that certain genetics were emphasized over others, which created what we see in tigers, in lions, bobcats, and in domestic cats. Certain traits were emphasized over time. All of that comes from one parent cat that we could talk about, one parent kind that led to that. So Noah only needed two of each kind. So if you think of it, the male and the female that he needed together provided all the genetic information for the different types of cats and dogs we see today. The poodle being the most degenerate of the dog kind. I mean, think about it. When you are breeding dogs, you're breeding for certain traits. And you have dog breeders that also want to create a new type of dog. So then you end up with the poodle, sadly. That was a mistake gone wrong there, in my opinion. But I know the Boonstras here breed German Shepherds. Those are beautiful dogs. But you're breeding to bring out certain traits. And by doing so, you're also eliminating other traits. So we just need to keep that in mind. And this all could come from two parent animals of that kind. We also notice that it's the Lord that gathers the animals. Because the other critique is, how could Noah roam the earth and gather all these animals? Well, Scripture tells us that it's the Lord that does it. And because animals are part of God's creation and he's the creator... And they're not affected by sin in the same sense that we are morally. When the creator calls, they respond. They have to obey. Because we are moral and sinful, we don't always obey. Last consideration for the second point. Was the flood a historical event? Now, through these other two points, I've alluded to the fact that, yes, it is. But there is scripture evidence aside from the geographical record. You see, scripture treats the flood as though it actually happened. First off, the author of Genesis, Moses, writes Genesis in such a way that it reads as a historical narrative. That means it's a historical account, a factual account. The scholars that try to say it's written any other way have to jump through a lot of fancy hoops to explain it that way. <clears throat> Let's turn our attention to the first passage that refers back to the flood of his historical event. Now, this is coming from Jesus, who is the author and savior and perfecter of our faith, who is truth, per John 1.1. He says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. If the flood is just a story meant to gain some, you know, practical insights from for our living, then why does Jesus refer to it in such detail? 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying. He describes the activities they're doing. I don't know about you, but since Jesus is our Lord and Savior and he is truth, I'm inclined to believe him. If I start questioning the flood account and question Jesus' words, I've got a bigger problem with my faith. We want to submit to the authority of God's word. The second passage that talks about this <clears throat> occurs in 2 Peter chapter 3. I put up verses, uh, starting in verse 5 up there, but verses 4 to 7. They will say, Peter's talking about scoffers there, so the scoffers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged and with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Notice in this passage that the scoffers explicitly deny the creation account and they deny the global flood. Peter tells us that the scoffers are going to do this. And this is what we see exactly happening in our world today. Those are two historical real events in scripture that people deny. That they cast skepticism on. Peter here is writing in a way that points back to the flood and creation as real historical events. Now, if believing Jesus' words weren't enough, you have the chief of the apostles here, Peter, the big man, saying the flood was real, a real historical event. And it wasn't just a real historical event, it was also global in its scope. But what about Noah? We haven't really talked much about him, and he's kind of important to the flood. So turn with me now as we go to the last portion of our passages. We're going to start in chapter 6, verses 8 to 10. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then 6 to 18 states, <clears throat> Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, and you and your heart... Oh, my bad. Wrong verse. <clears throat> verse 13. Sorry. And on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the th three wives of his sons, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its time, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah. Two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God has commanded. And the Lord shut them in. That was chapter 7, uh, 13 to 16. Looking at that first verse in uh, chapter 6, those first few verses, we see that Noah is described as a righteous man. How did God describe the rest of his generation? As wicked and evil. So Noah stands out. 
So then it begs the question, why does Noah stand out? Why is Noah righteous? What makes him different than those of his generation? Well, he is righteous because he walked in obedience with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 states, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Noah walked with the Lord. He obeyed the Lord and it was by faith and faith alone. Faith in God and what God was doing. He obeyed God. The rest of his generation did not. And we see that because Noah found favor in the eyes of God, God extended to him grace. You see, Noah was still a sinful man. It's not that he was exempt from the curse and perfect. That's why he was righteous. He was righteous because he had faith in God. That's what Hebrews tells us. And it was because of his faith that he experienced the grace of God. Now in chapter 7, verses 13 to 16, at the very end of 16, I want us to focus on six words. And the Lord shut him in. There are several amazing comforting truths that we can draw from just those six words. The Lord shut Noah in, his family in. To the ark. <clears throat> First off, it's God is the one who does the saving. God does the action of shutting Noah into the ark. The Bible explicitly records that. The Bible doesn't say Noah shut himself in. God shut Noah in. Thus sealing Noah for salvation. That's an immense comfort and truth. Because woe to us if we say that we are responsible for our own salvation, right? We should cry with Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, that salvation is of the Lord. And the only thing that I contribute to my salvation is my sin that made it necessary. So the Lord seals our adoption in Christ with the Holy Spirit just as he sealed Noah and the ark. It's also important to note that the sealing of Noah and his family in the ark is also a foreshadowing of the salvation of Christ. You see, Noah and his family were saved by a wooden ark. We too are saved by wood as well. Wood that formed the cross that our Savior hung on. Christ is the ark of our salvation. For Noah, there was only one door to salvation, and that was the door to the ark. When he climbed up that ramp for the last time after working and building on the ark, and he went inside, he entered the freedom of his salvation. Just as we enter the freedom in our salvation by the cross. The cross is our door. The second point that we can take from these six small words that God shut them in, it shows that God was with them 
during the flood. It's not that he shut them in and said, okay, see ya. I'm going to let the flood waves toss you back and forth, and you're just going to struggle and suffer for this next year. No, he was with them. Just as he is, he is with us now, just as God sealed the door of the ark, he seals our salvation by the Holy Spirit. This is in Ephesians. And the Spirit dwells within us. We don't go through life alone. We don't go through trials and struggles alone. That's why the Christian can say, no matter what comes my way, God is with me. And he is for me. So we see that God has saved humanity through Noah. This is another foreshadowing of Christ. Because if you think about it, only Noah and his family are saved. So the earth had to be repopulated again through his family. So God saved the whole of humanity through one man and his family, Noah. And he does so again with Christ. Except this time, the salvation saves us from our sin. We see that Noah and his family survived the flood. This is Genesis 8, verses 1 through 19. Essentially, God remembers Noah. He remembers the beasts and the livestock that are on the ark. And he causes the floodwaters to recede. Noah sends out a dove. The dove comes back. He does it again, and the dove doesn't come back, telling him that there is ground. The Lord provides for them. Now, I had this question posed to me a while ago about the flood. Why did God need to do, have the flood happen? Adam and Eve fell. God could have just ended humanity there, but he doesn't. He extends grace and lets them live. So then why does he enact the flood? And why does he choose again to enact his grace and spare Noah and his family if mankind is sinful and we're just going to mess up again? What is his purpose? We see the flood served to further God's redemptive plan. You see, as you read through Scripture... You see God's unfolding plan of redemption, and it's beautiful. And it culminates at the cross, the cross of Christ. The flood was not plan B, or at that point, plan C. This was all a part of God's plan from the beginning. His plan to show his great love for us by demonstrating it on the cross. The flood points to the greater salvation of Christ, and it points to the coming judgment when we will stand before God someday. And that judgment will be greater than the judgment of the flood. So my question to you today, do you know Christ as your Savior? Is he the ark of your salvation? Because if he's not, judgment is coming. And just as in the flood, humanity was wiped out, this next judgment will be worse because you will be eternally separated from God. And this next judgment will not be a judgment of water, 
but will be a judgment of fire, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter. Sin has consequences. But there is a door to salvation, and it's through Christ, our great high priest and king. So do you know Christ? Have you come to him? Have you repented of your sins? Some of you might say, I know of Christ, but I don't want to come to him because there's no way he will accept me. If you only knew the things I did, the atrocities I've committed over my life, the horrible thoughts I have, there's no way I can come to him. I want to remind you that it is primarily for sinners that Christ came. That is a comfort, because guess what? We're all sinners here. It's not that Christ says, I only came for the people that can make it, that can prove their righteousness. No, he came for all sinners. And he extends to us the free gift of grace. He extended grace to Noah and his family. He extends grace to you now. Come to Christ. He knows everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, and he loves you. His burden is not great. You can rest in him. Come to Christ and rest. Do not delay. You will not be disappointed with your Savior ever. Lord, we just come before you today praising you for your grace. Lord, you always make a way for your redemptive purposes. You preserve your people by your power. Just as you preserve Noah and his family, you preserve us from the grips of sin and death. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for what you do through your word by bringing dead sinners to life. Lord, again, I ask that if no one, if people do not know you, that they would come to know you and believe in the good news. Lord, be with the people here at church as they go out this week to celebrate the 4th of July and to celebrate our freedom that we have here in the United States. But Lord, impress upon their hearts and remind them of the greater freedom they have in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.